Hello, friends and colleagues, and welcome to episode 20 of Dermosphere. We have hit the big 2-0. Woohoo! I am one of your hosts. <laughs> My name is Luke Johnson. I am a pediatric dermatologist and general dermatologist. Uh, at the University of Utah in Salt Lake City. And uh, joining me on the line is my woohooing friend and colleague. <laughs> this is Michelle Tarvox. I am an assistant professor of dermatology and dermatopathology at Texas Tech University Health Sciences Center in beautiful, sunny Lubbock, Texas. We started Dermosphere 20 episodes ago to update our listeners on some articles and research that we think is most relevant for clinical practice. We cover all subdisciplines of dermatology, dermatopathology, surgery, pediatric dermatology, medical stuff, cosmetic stuff, pediatric stuff. It's all on the table, and we've got some great articles to discuss today. Um, and we're actually going to start with a couple of brief comments about articles that we have reviewed in the past. Which is always fun to see um, what the follow-up is. So we have here a letter to the editor from the International Journal of Cancer. The author is Sadaf Alipur. And this is in response to the article about hair dye and chemical straightener use and breast cancer risk in a large U.S. population of black and white women. Which so we they... discussed in episode 18. Yes, episode 18 is where we went over that. Um, this is a physician from the Department of Surgery in Arash Women's Hospital in Tehran, Iran. And as do most um, letters to the editor, this begins with, Dear Editor, usually there's a little bit of flattery at the beginning of a letter to the editor. So the article, Hair Dye and Chemical Straightener Use and Breast Cancer Risk in a Large U.S. Population of Black and White Women, an extremely valuable large-scale study which has focused on the association of breast cancer with hair dyes, hair stabilizers, and um, used in industrial products containing endocrine-disrupting chemicals, was read with interest. And then they discuss that the positive findings can be an explanation for the increasing trend of breast cancer incidence in developing countries because women in these areas are using industrial dyes more frequently, and for the increasing rates of breast cancer in young age since hair dyes, which were predominant used on white hair as an aged people are now more commonly used in the young population. And we've probably all noticed that there's a trend towards body enhancement slash modification in our younger cohorts, um, tattoos, different colored hair dyes, things like that. Filters uh, on Instagram. Filters on Instagram, yes, which is a much easier way to change your hair color, just, you know, bear that in mind. And then as many letters to the editor then proceed, there is a however. So, however... First, as authors mention, only use of hair dye in the year before enrollment was questioned and use throughout the cohort is not assessed. So therefore, hair dyeing in a non-user who got breast cancer in year X and has colored her hair through the first X years of enrollment is overlooked, which I think was um, clarified as potentially a weak point of the study. Um, also, the, how the authors assured that non-users did not use dye in previous years was not addressed. And also, how much was the interval between use and breast cancer? They have kind of three points. Second, results are stated to be adjusted for various variables, but not for age. While age is the most important when speaking about breast cancer in a population where a great proportion are below the expected age of breast cancer. And about hair dyeing, which is not likely to be distributed normally and without any relation to the age of women. So the, the age of the patients and the stratification there might have clarified that data. And then the third point they raised is that the authors found out that application of semi-permanent dye increases the use of breast cancer, but personal use did not. And this was a point that we actually had a little bit 
of difficulty. I went back and listened to this episode, um, and we had a little bit of difficulty understanding the way it was written in the article as well. But basically, um, through rereading the article and kind of rereading this also uh, interpretation, it seems that the application of semi-permanent dye was somebody else applying dye to a different person's hair. So that person's exposure would be through their hands if they weren't wearing gloves and through inhalation. Um, so they say basically if skin absorption due to coloring of hands or inhalation of these materials causes or increased risk of breast cancer, then why would personal use be less effective? How can this result be justified was their question. Yeah, and we then, were confused on that as well. We were confused and on that as well. I so, remain confused. Yes. And then um, they also said, fourth, when endocrine disrupting chemicals are to be investigated, many confounding factors should be considered, including environmental and nutritional factors, because they can contain large proportions of these substances. So environmental exposures or nutritional exposures to endocrine disrupting chemicals can potentially be important um, and that can produce highly prevalent exposure, which may be very different among different participants, especially between patients who are Caucasian, patients who are non-Caucasian. So and the also idea then is this could be a confounder because people who dye their hair might also have different diets or different other environmental exposures. Right. And really the most significant finding in that previous study was hair dye use in African-American women. But they're suggesting that there might be also different environmental exposures in those cohorts of patients. Um, certainly, if we look at distribution of people in the United States, in some areas especially, neighborhoods that are traditionally um, more prevalent to have patients who are non-Caucasian might actually be localized in some cities because of housing practices and things with sort of um, longitudinal systemic discrimination where the pipes are older and may have more leaching of chemicals into the water supply and things like this. So none of this was addressed, which was a concern of this author of this letter to the editor. Mm. And so that they, they raised this point. They also say also women who use hair dye more commonly generally also use more cosmetics, which may also contain estrogen, um, sort of modifying chemicals, which is true, and other probable effective agents, which were not addressed in the study. And then they also said, fifth, a weird finding, and I think we discussed this, um, that warrants reevaluation is that postmenopausal women used hair dyes less frequently than premenopausal women. And they posit the question, is it actually possible to accept that whitening of the hair affects negatively the ratio of hair coloring by women, which I think was a question that we kind of raised as well when we were looking at this. So they were kind of questioning these points. Um, they also say the authors first mentioned that one third of women color their hair in the U.S., but in their cohort more than half do, which was 55%. Do they have an explanation for the difference? And then they also related that since breast cancer is more frequent in postmenopausal women, have data about this group of participants been analyzed separately? I do think that would be a more powerful analysis. Um, she finally concludes her letter by saying, a quick search on the internet shows how much a title about increased breast risk of breast cancer by hair dyes can be disseminated and how much it can alarm women. So we need to emphasize and even overemphasize two chief issues. First, as the authors comment, all women in the study had a significant risk factor, which is a first degree relative with breast cancer. So they were not the general population. This point should have been quoted in the conclusion and even the title. And I think that that is reasonable to say because We've all seen how these sort of catchy um, journal titles can be extrapolated into the general media and create a little bit of a frenzy or hysteria that certainly happened with the systemic absorption of sunscreen article that was published. The um, 
sort of presentation to the lay public was somewhat sensationalized. And certainly we need to be careful about that. Um, so they kind of felt that that was important to discuss. And then they said, second, the overall risk increase was 9%, which is a slight increase. Um, even the 45% increase in black women remains comparable to many other minor risk factors, so that this was not a sort of terrifying conclusion. And the reason that she feels passionate about this is that as this person is a surgeon who manages breast cancer, and her patients ask her frequently if they may use hair dyes, she says, we should not forget that these patients need to improve their quality of life, and a good appearance is one of the steps that is required for many patients. So a recommendation to go with white hair is disturbing to many, and this point must be handled with great caution, which I think is very reasonable. And I do think that when we are looking at population studies, um, we do have to be cautious to interpret them uh, and to look for hidden confounders, as well as to consider the generalizability of the findings, as well as the potential harms that can be done by extrapolation of the findings in a sensationalistic way to the lay public and the lay press. Yeah. What did you think? Some good, com some good points um, because sort of the tagline of that article is using hair dye increases your risk of breast cancer. Yeah. Uh, but there's a, a lot of nitty gritty weedy details here. And as we know, the details are where the devil lies. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And so, you know, I think that these population-based studies do give us great power to start to detect signals, but we can certainly also find the possibility of either false equivalence or conclusion. Um, you know, there's lots of silly examples of this, like the, you know, tomato mortality connection where 100% of people who eat tomatoes die at some point, you know, things like that. Um, That's why I don't eat them. I also, know. they taste bad. Well, and, you know, speaking of eating tomatoes, we might talk about eating peppers, you know, with the um, study on um, dietary modification and supplement use in a more holistic way to treat psoriasis, um, which I think you're going to talk about next. I am, yes. So uh, in episode um, 19, just the last one, we had uh, Dr. Uh, Haynes Eli, um, we reviewed one of his articles where he feels that psoriasis is very much uh, related to the gut and kind of leaky gut stuff. So you can go back and listen to that one if you would like, and you should. And by the way, you can find it on our website, dermospherepodcast.com, where we have our entire archive available for you, including links to the original articles. It is um, non-sponsored and there is no fee to use it. It's just out there as a resource to be used. Right. So Dr. Um, Eli... Uh, wrote back to us after we informed him that we had reviewed his article and said that the protocol he tends to use in practice is a lot simpler than uh, we may have made it out to see. <laughs> so he says that for his patients with psoriasis who want to try this approach, no alcohol and no peppers. So he talks in the article how both of those increased the rate of endotoxin reabsorption from the gut. So no alcohol, no peppers. Ox bile, 500 milligrams with each meal. You can get more information about ox bile in that uh, other episode if you like. It's not expensive. And then quercetin or quercetin or however you pronounce it, 500 milligrams with each meal. Little meat. He says the diet is the least important. Ah, interesting. And, and in the article, he had mentioned that he sometimes uses sulfasalazine or azithromycin. But in his email to us, he said the rest of the pills are not crucial. And I only add them to people who have trouble clearing. 
Okay. So, um, Michelle, you had raised the point of your crunchy granola patients being concerned about using some of those um, allopathic medicines. So perhaps they don't even need to do that. Maybe they can just do the ox bile and the quercetin. They'd be yeah. probably much more on board no, with that. No alcohol or peppers. And so I also asked him then about pediatric psoriasis because kids get psoriasis and I assume they usually don't have messed up livers. <laughs> so he says he thinks about pediatric psoriasis a lot and he has no opinion, he says. But he can speculate that it is a different disease. He says, as I speculate, there are several conditions which are diagnosed as psoriasis, which are clever mimics. And he says writer's disease is a good example. We might know that as reactive arthritis as well. And then I also mentioned um, that you, uh, Michelle, had sort of suggested during our podcast in episode 19 that maybe what we see as phenotypically psoriasis is actually has several different pathomechanisms to get to it. And it's kind of a common final pathway of a number of different problems, one of which could be the leaky gut thing. Um, am I paraphrasing you properly? That sounds like what I said, yes. So I said, I asked Dr. Eli what he thought of that. And he said, the answer to that question will be answered by testing all psoriatics for endotoxemia. The patients with no endotoxemia would be the ones to look at for a differing pathomechanism. So I don't know how easy it is to uh, draw blood and check it for endotoxins, but could be a future direction if anybody out there is interested in doing some more research into it. His ponderings on the differences between adult and pediatric psoriasis are interesting. Um, pediatric patients with psoriasis, as you probably know, do tend to have more frequent involvement of the face and the, the head and neck in general, and the plaques tend to be thinner and less micaceous in their scale. So he might have something, he might be going on something there. Yeah, we'll see how it evol evolves. <laughs> so very, very interesting. So um, did he have any other things he wanted to talk about with that particular paper? Or that is one? all. Go back all and right. check it out if you're interested in learning more. Very interesting. So now I get to talk about something fun. And, um, you know, occasionally I forget that I set myself up for something. So um, this is an article out of the Journal of Investigative Dermatology in 2019. And as I was reading this, I wanted to quote one of my favorite movies, which is The Princess Bride, um, in which Vicini says, Ha-ha, you fool, you fell victim to one of the classic blunders, the most famous of which is never get involved in a land war in Asia, but only slightly well as well known as this. Never assign a pathologist a controversial pathological entity to talk about. Then... Luke reminded me that I picked this article, so I have to say I fell victim to one of the classic blunders. Um, but we're going to talk. Remember, about... <laughs> I don't remember. I don't remember any of the characters in Princess Bride being pathologists, though. I'll have to no, go no, back no, and check that quote. I mean, you know, there is that albino gentleman who does the experiments with the, you know, life-sucking machine. But um, the actual quote is "Never go in on, against a Sicilian when death is on the line." So, and then he laughs very. Maniacally. Um, so I am going to address kind of a 126-year-old controversy here. So the name of this article is Defining the Genetics of Basosquamous Carcinoma. And the authors are Eric Terrapore and Scott Atwood. And this is discussing um, basosquamous carcinoma, which is a rare form of skin cancer with both basaloid and squamous morphology. This is a controversial diagnosis. And it has existed for about 126 years, since it was first described by Beatles in 1894, where he described... By the Beatles? His, by, the, by the Beatles. No, it's wow, B-E-E-L-A-S. Oh, I was going <laughs> to yeah, say, is this one of their deep cuts? They'd be singing, oh, you, basis... No, anyway. anyway. Um, so... 
this was a carcinoma with the budding basaloid and squamous features without clear separation in a rodent ulcer, which was the old descriptive term for ulcerated basal cell carcinomas. There were multiple different descriptions of similar types of tumors throughout the literature, and this remains controversial amongst pathologists on how to define or characterize these hybrid lesions. Are they a collision? Are they a variant of basal cell carcinoma that forms keratin? Are they a unique cancer with features of both basal cell carcinoma and squamous cell carcinoma? These mixed morphology tumors have multiple different names, sort of indicating how controversial and confusing this is, including basosquamous carcinoma, basosquamous cell carcinoma, metatypical basal cell carcinoma, basal cell carcinoma with squamous differentiation in over 20 publications within the past decade. Well, so, listeners, we will resolve the controversy today. You are lucky try. to we're going to try. So in 2005, the WHO did provide a description of basosquamous carcinoma, um, which was then further discussed by Garcia and colleagues as a tumor with infiltrative growth with areas of keratinization and or intercellular bridge formation in the setting of prototypical proliferative stromal reaction. So basosquamous carcinoma is used to describe basal cell carcinomas that are associated with squamous differentiations. Um, the National Comprehensive Cancer Network, NCCN, classify the tumor clinically as a variant of SCC due to its aggressive course and higher tendency to recur and cause metastases. Um, further muddying the waters, there is another entity called basaloid squamous cell carcinoma, which is an aggressive tumor of the aerodigestive tract that can be um, localized anywhere from the nasopharynx to the oral mucosa to the esophagus, all the way out to the other end in the perianal area, and tends to be associated with human papillomavirus infection. So this is very, very confusing. So these authors attempted to clarify these muddy waters somewhat with genetic studies. So they found that genetically basosquamous cell carcinomas likely originate as basal cell carcinomas that partially squamatize through the accumulation of mutations, including the ARID1A gene and the RASMAP kinase pathway. There you go. Controversy solved. That, <laughs> ring, that, ring that bell. So we're going to have some important information here. So the ARID1A gene... Uh, this provides instructions to make a protein that forms a subunit of several different SWI-SNF protein complexes. SWI-SNF complexes sound a little bit like an offshoot of the North by Northwest um, concert series in Austin, Texas. What they actually are is switch sucrose non-fermentable. Um, so this is a nucleosome remodeling complex, and they're involved in chromatin remodeling. Right, remodeling. So ARID1A mutation was first described um, as a genetic driver of ovarian cancer, but here we'll kind of discuss its potential role in altering something that probably started out as a basal cell carcinoma and then accumulated mutations. So a little bit of a review and great pimpable content for our residents. Basal cell carcinomas are locally invasive epithelial tumors. They have inappropriate activation of the hedgehog pathway, and they account for the vast majority of skin cancers, 60 to 80 percent of all skin cancers. So we need to kind of go over the baseline of how this pathway is supposed to work and then how it gets messed up in basal cell carcinomas. So normally the hedgehog pathway is not active in mature adults. So then in that setting where the hedgehog ligand is absent. The receptor patched one sits there and calms down smoothened and keeps it from misbehaving. So smoothened is being quiet and not agitating. When smoothened is not doing its thing and which when it's being kind of contained and calmed down by patched one, 
it allows the suppressor of fused, which is referred to as Sufu, which I think is hilarious. It looks like, you know, the name of potentially kind of a, a cool wrapper or something. So Sufu, to keep the glee transcription factors within the cytoplasm. As we know, the glee transcription factors, when they get into the nucleus, allow for transcription and no good happens. It's just problematic when you're not supposed to be undergoing differentiation and division of cells. So in the presence of hedgehog-induced patched inhibition, so when the hedgehog ligand is present, it inhibits patched one, which makes it let go of smoothened. That means smoothened is then able to suppress SUFU, which then allows the glee transcription factors to enter the nucleus and regulate transcription of downstream target genes associated with skin appendage development and homeostasis. So then you end up with some cell division. So sporadic BCCs usually arise from progenitor cells in the basal layer of the epidermis, predominantly from muta mutations in patched one, which is about 73% of basal cells, or smoothened, which is about 20% of basal cells. So the majority of basal cells come from a mutation in patched one. The rest of them, mo most of them come from a mutation in smoothened. We use smoothened inhibitors because that is sort of the final common pathway to treat advanced or metastatic basal cell carcinomas. And I think smoothened is a better target because well, if we used a patched uh, or something, well, well, if we, we wouldn't want to inhibit patch, but if we used something to sort of mimic the activity of patch, um, we might not be able to control those 20% of basal cell carcinomas that come from a mutation in smoothened. So, so the smoothen you're talking about vemurafenib and serafenib. Exactly. So um, tumors can gain resistance to these drugs through squamatization. So then they kind of go through the genetics of squamous cell carcinoma. Squamous cell carcinoma, as we all know, is the second most common form of skin cancer, comprising about 20% of all cases of skin cancer, usually arising from superbasal keratinocytes. So this is an important point. Unlike basal cell carcinomas, squamous cell carcinomas are more complex because they are genetically heterogeneous. They are actually arising from different levels of postmitotic superbasal cells at different stages of differentiation. And so the genes that are implicated in the progression of squamous cell carcinoma include T53, uh, sorry, TP53, Notch1 and Notch2, CDKN2A, which is also sometimes associated with familial melanoma syndrome, and members of the RASMAP kinase pathway. So we don't have monotherapies that are quite as effective in treating squamous cell carcinoma because of the large number of genetic alterations that are needed to promote proliferation, loose cellular connections and communication, and to stimulate a mutator phenotype to push keratinocytes to squamous cell carcinoma. So, so the, those were the most common mutations in squamous cell carcinoma. Maybe it's so worth repeating them and yes. ringing the bell so the residents pay attention. This. All right, so for squamous cell carcinoma, we have TP53. So P53 is something you might talk about when you're sitting in your dermatopathology rotations. Notch 1 and Notch 2, which are involved in several different syndromic associations, um, both within the skin and within the cytoskeleton. CDKN2A, which is also known as P16, um, which can be mutated in the familial melanoma syndrome associated with pancreatic cancer. And the RASMEP kinase pathway, which is problematic in rasopathies, but also has been indicated in the pathogenesis of multiple different kinds of cancer. So those are the various types of mutations squamous cell carcinomas can develop. So then they go specifically to talk about basosquamous carcinomas. So these compromise about 1.2 to 2.7% of skin cancers, and they have a 5% incidence of metastasis. So they metastasize more frequently than basal cells, but not as frequently as squamous cell carcinomas. And they histologically share characteristics of basal cell and squamous cell carcinoma, but they tend to be considered a type of basal cell carcinoma with a higher rate of recurrence and metastasis. So there's kind of a lack of awareness of their pathology and molecular drivers. Um, as we know, hedgehog pathway mutations are likely to initiate tumor formation of basal cell carcinoma. They 
surmise that there's a bifurcation event where these basosquamous cell carcinomas um, then obtain an ARID1A mutation to promote the SCC driver mutations and squamatizations leading to their mixed nature. So they actually did genetic linkage of basal cell carcinoma, sorry, basosquamous carcinoma using targeted sequencing um, from 20 basosquamous carcinomas. They did whole exome sequencing also from 16 basal cell carcinomas and a mixture of previously published whole exome and whole genome data sets from squamous cell carcinomas. And they found that the basosquamous carcinomas were more closely um, aligned with basal cell carcinoma than with squamous cell carcinoma. So 45% of basal squamous carcinoma and 44% of basal cell carcinomas contain deleterious mutations within patch 1, whereas only 10% of squamous cell carcinomas showed patch 1 mutations. So genetically, these basal squamous carcinomas seem to be basal cells that went even more bad, is kind of my takeaway from this. Um, so the 15% of basal squamous carcinomas and 19% of basal cell carcinomas carried mutations additionally for MYCN, which is a member of the MYC family of oncogenes and is also mutated in neuroblastoma. That's a little thing also. Um, this is a downstream effector of hedgehog signaling um, versus that 15 to 19% with basal squamous and basal cell carcinomas, only 6% of squamous cell carcinomas showed MYCN mutations. Similar relationships were also seen with putative BCC drivers such as P10 and PIK3CA. P10 and PIK3CA all have associations with overgrowth syndrome, so I'll ring the bell one more time for that. Um, these are also things that have been known to be putative drivers of basal cell carcinogenesis. Um, they did note that not all mutational drivers of basal cell carcinoma were found at comparable rates in basal squamous carcinomas. So the constitutively active SMO mutation was only found in 5% of basal squamous carcinomas versus 25% in basal cell carcinomas. So that's kind of an important point. It seems to be that these basal squamous carcinomas are evolving out of a subset of the majority of basal cells that are created by a, a sort of initiating mutation in patched one. And it appears that that's the pathway that's required for them to continue to progress towards the basal squamous carcinoma in the majority of cases. So I thought that that was kind of interesting that they only were able to find 5% of basal squamous carcinomas that had a smoothened mutation when smoothened mutations are identified in between 20 to 25% of basal cell carcinomas. So I feel like that bifurcation actually creates a pathway. So if you're going to draw a line diagram, you could do a line diagram to say patched one mutation versus smoothened mutation for basal cell carcinoma to develop. And then the basal squamous carcinomas, the vast majority would come off of the limb with the patched mutation with further um, development of different mutations in their cytoplasm or in their, in their nuclei. Um, other different mutations uh, such as the PPP6C, which is protein phosphatase 6, um, GRIN, 2A and PREX2. These are all things that had similar mutational frequencies between basal cell carcinoma sorry, between basal squamous carcinoma and squamous cell carcinoma. So they felt that basal cell carcinomas were more similar to basal squamous carcinomas and vice versa than squamous cell carcinoma, which I thought I was... I buy it. Yeah. They also said that the major SEC driver genes, such as CDK2 NTA, CDKN2A, KRAS, NRAS, and HRAS, were not mutated in either basal squamous carcinoma or basal cell carcinoma. So there's more similarity between basal... Um, for, between basal squamous carcinoma and basal cell carcinoma in the majority of the mutations that were studied. And the most important one was the ARID1A, which is a 
disruption that can promote mammalian cell proliferation and regeneration. It's an important gene. It actually allows for plasticity and enhances cell survival by reducing restrictive natures of chromatin remodeling, remodeling in terminally differentiated cells. Um, so it may allow keratinocytes to sample different fates and undergo squamatization under selective pressure. And this is sometimes seen in the event that you have a smoothened inhibitor in place trying to treat skin cancer of the basal cell type. So I thought that that was very interesting there. Um, they had some very nice diagrams that showed the kind of paradigm we spoke of earlier where there's a first insult and you have a hedgehog pathway mutation, most likely patch one, um, developing basal cell carcinoma, and then you get a second insult that allows for mutation in chromatin remodeling ARID1A or usage of hedgehog pathway inhibitors that then starts to accumulate different mutations, which I thought was pretty interesting. So I think that this um, lends some clarity to the differentiation between these tumors. I still think I will continue, continue to consider basal squamous carcinoma as a sort of evil big brother of basal cell carcinoma. And I think that that's a good way to think of it. Um, it behaves a lot more like a basal cell carcinoma than it behaves like a squamous cell carcinoma. Because of the additional mutations it may have garnered, smoothened inhibitors may be less useful for this type of skin cancer. And so I think that that might be something that's clinically useful if you get a report that you have keratinizing or squamatized basal cell carcinoma or basal squamous carcinoma. I think I misspoke earlier when I mentioned the names of the smoothened inhibitors. I think I said vemurafenib and surafenib, but that's just wrong. Mm. It's vismotajib and sunitajib. So yes, sorry. My bad. Hopefully Vis whoever heard that first part listened all the way to the end here. <laughs> uh, what I took out of this article mainly is that now we have kind of decided that basosquames are a type of basal cell carcinoma, but they get this arid 1A mutation that turns them into a special badness. Yeah, kind of a souped-up version, souped-up evil version of basal cell carcinoma. I want to talk about something else. Okay. Atopic dermatitis. In All right. It's an important topic. Michelle, have you ever had a patient in clinic who has atopic dermatitis and is under age 12? In fact, yes, mm -hmm. I have. I think, you know, just the past week, I had about three of them that I would have loved to be able to put on this medication. This medication being... Dupilumab. So as pro most of our listeners probably know, dupilumab is a little bit of a game-changing medication. It's an injectable biologic for atopic dermatitis, the only one of its class that has been approved. Um, and it is a, sorry, um, it is a fully monoclonal antibody to the alpha subunit of interleukin-4R. And it's approved for people who are age 12 or over, at least um, in this country. But Michelle is not alone in having patients who are under 12 that she feels <laughs> could probably benefit from it. And there are industry-sponsored studies underway um, all the way down to six months, if you can believe it or not. Wow. Um, but this article said, well, what happens if you really want it for somebody who's under 12? Can you get it? Can they use it? Do they have bad side effects? What dosing should you use? And an attempt to kind of clarify some of this, I think, as kind of a stopgap measure until it gets approved by the FDA, because I am confident that it will. So this was a multi-center retrospective review um, in eight centers, all um, conducted by pediatric dermatologists. And this article is out of the JAD and is called Off-Label Use of Dupilumab for Pediatric Patients with Atopic Dermatitis, a Multi-Center Retrospective Review. And the senior author is... Elaine Siegfried, and the first author seems, oh, to be, uh, seems to be a medical student named Sean Eagleman. Elaine and is lovely. These folks are mostly out of St. Louis, and uh, we'll tell Elaine that you say hello. 
Let's hear it for the Lou. <laughs> um, yeah, didn't you do some training at SLU? I actually, I was in practice for three years as an assistant professor there. Oh, yeah, you were faculty there. I was. Um, so, shout out. So, this uh, retrospective review had 124 children under 12, and the pediatric dermatologist tried to get them to pilumab because they had moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. I have done the same thing with a handful of kids in my clinic who are under age 12 and uh, just feel like they do well on dupilumab. 90% of kids in this study got it covered. So wow. you might uh, you might try for some of your kids, but it took a mean of nine weeks, they say, I suppose, to write appeals and so mm -hmm. on until it finally got covered. Uh, the dose range they gave was highly variable. So there are doses that are approved for people who are 12 and up, but no doses that have been approved for any age lower than that. So people are kind of making educated guesses about what the dose should be. They did note that the efficacy of the medicine and the adverse events were comparable to those seen in adolescence, which means it works pretty good and it's pretty darn safe. So in this particular group of 124 kids under 12, 3% of them got URIs, 9% of them got conjunctivitis, 2% of them got injection site reaction, um, and 5% of them got a new facial dermatitis. You might recall that back in episode two of Dermosphere, we talked about um, this sort of facial dermatitis side effect with dupilumab, which they refer to as a new regional dermatosis. Um, in that article, they posited that this was perhaps an allergic contact dermatitis that was being unmasked by dupilumab since it affects some of the inflammatory pathways. Mm -hmm. So part of the problem is dosing. So the drug comes as prepackaged unmarked syringes that are either 300 milligrams of the drug in 2 ml syringes for patients who are 60 kilograms or greater, or there's kind of the adolescent dose, 200 milligrams in a 1.1 ml syringe for people who are under 60 kilograms. So then what do you do if you manage to get it covered for somebody who doesn't weigh very much? Well, the dose range in that they found in this study, people tried things all over the board, but they at least came to um, some kind of consensus about what they would recommend. So this might be helpful until we get some more guidance from industry and the FDA. So for if you get it covered for kids who are age 6 to age 12, if they weigh 30 kilograms or more, they suggest a 400 milligram loading dose, followed by a maintenance dose of 200 milligrams every two weeks. Okay, so that's basically the same as people who are 30 to 60 kilograms adolescent types approved already. If they're less than 30 kilograms, so these are like little kids, uh, well, they're not all that little, 30 kilograms. <laughs> anyway, uh, they recommend a loading dose of 200 milligrams and a maintenance dose of 100 milligrams every two weeks. So kind of half of the adolescent dose, if you will. And then they didn't provide a recommendation for six months to six-year-olds, um, regardless of what weight they were. Um, they do comment that saving additional medicine for subsequent use is not advised. So you inject some from the syringe, and then if there's extra left over, then I guess you throw it out, <laughs> which is uh, an expensive thing Nixon to do. Makes you want to cry but, a little bit, you know, but you know. There you go. Uh, they did note that some people in their study got other benefits besides their eczema getting better that perhaps uh, that they thought were maybe drug-related. Other positive outcomes, they say, including rapid resolution of long-standing warts and molluscum and marked subjective improvements in mood and mental health. I think uh, the mood and mental health definitely make sense. And then, as we know, warts and molluscum are just more common in people with bad eczema because the skin barrier is disrupted so the viruses can get in there. So if you 
fix somebody's eczema, then hopefully their warts and their molluscum will get better too. In my experience, um, I have tried to get Doopy for two or three patients who are under age 12. And so I think three. Two of them, I have been successful. The insurance company has agreed to pay for it. However, the patient still can't get it mm. because... Copay? Yes. So there's apparently some kind of benefit card that you can get that makes your copay $30 or something like that. But it only works if you're in the FDA-approved age group. So even though insurance covers 90 or 80% of this cost of this medicine, it's still going to cost these families like four to $600 per dose. And my patients can't afford that. So that's lame. And so despite all of my Luke Johnson's hard work and trying to <laughs> get this medicine, I should also say, and the hard work of the University of Utah prior auth team and the MAs who are involved. I mean, this is not a small number of people and a small amount of effort. We still can't get this medicine because of this particular issue, which makes me want to bang my head against the wall, which mm -hmm. occasionally I do sometimes. But fortunately, our office is very close to the emergency room. Um, the third patient I've tried to get it, we're still in the appeals process, so we'll see what happens. So for any of our listeners who want to use this medicine for kids who are under age 12, I recommend that you cite this article when you write your appeal to the insurance company. You know, it works. It doesn't have a lot of adverse effects. It works for other people. To be honest, I don't know quite how insurance companies justify denying it because nothing is approved for atopic dermatitis in kids under 12. You know, methotrexate's not approved. Cyclosporin's not approved. Dupilumab is approved if you're 12 and up. So that seems like the logical thing to use. Um, but I know it's very expensive, which I suspect is part of the problem. Yes. You know, um, you know, it's a very interesting medication. And I have had a few, like I've had, I think, two patients total that were not in the FDA-indicated range but were close-ish, and we were able to get it approved, but there's similar difficulty with the, the copayment thing. I mean, you, if you can't, the, even 10% of that drug cost is prohibitive for most families. Um, the patients who can get the drug, all, all of them have been adults because the copayment card works for them, um, have had pretty darn impressive results with the exception of one patient that had sort of this weird connective tissue -y picture and I think that there were other pathways involved in that particular patient but it's a it's a very I think useful drug and you know I'm excited to see some studies done on pediatric um, use of the medication because this is usually the pathway that's taken before FDA approval for younger children is attempted I'm sure it will be approved it's just a matter of time cool all right Eczema sucks, and so does hydradenitis superativa. Yes, speaking of things that are difficult to treat. So um, we have an article uh, out of the JAD 2020. So that's very exciting. Um, so it's entitled Rifampin, Moxifloxacin, Metronidazole Combination Therapy for Severe Hurley Stage Hydradenitis Superativa, Prospective Short-Term Trial, and One-Year Follow-Up in 28 Consecutive Patients. The chief authors are M. Delage and... Jean Lambert. Uh, I'm saying it that way because all of these people are from France. So they are either from Paris, France, or from Toulouse, which is one of my favorite places in France. Though I'd rather go to win. Ha ha. Ha ha ha. Toulouse to win. That was hilarious. Okay. So um, they focus in this study on severe 
Hurley Stage 1 Hydrogenetis Superativa. And the reason that they do that is they had a previous trial where they looked at this combination of medications in different Hurley stages of patients. And um, not only this trial, but also um, different medications that kind of work similarly. So they had a previous retrospective study where they did RMOM, is what they call this therapy, RMOM therapy, standing for this rifampin, moxifloxacin, metronidazole therapy. Our mom. Um, our mom. Our mom. Put them on. Our mom. I like that. I can um, say, so uh, have you tried our mom? And they'd be like, <laughs> what? We're not siblings. Uh, oh, my goodness. Um, so they included... Um, all stages of, of Hurley stage patients in that previous study. And they found that six out of six of their patients that were Hurley stage one improved, eight out of 10 of the Hurley stage two, so 80% improved, and only two out of 12 or 17% of the Hurley stage three patients improved. So I think that it was smart that they decided to target Hurley stage one patients. I also think that it's important to talk about how we manage severe Hurley stage one patients. These are patients that have nodules and abscesses, but do not have any scarring or sinus tract formation because there are no other, I don't actually know if there are any FDA approved medicines specifically for Hurley stage one. Hurley stage two and three have FDA approval for the use of adalimumab but early stage one patients don't have that approval. So they used uh, oral combination of rifampin, 10 milligrams per kilogram once daily, moxifloxacin, 400 milligrams once daily, and metronidazole, 250 to 500 milligrams TID. The rifampin was taken on an empty stomach with um, no eating of anything for one hour afterwards or after two hours after the last meal. So empty stomach on that thing. Um, so this was an open-label non-comparative cohort study in 28 consecutive patients. They had 19 patients that they treated for six weeks by RMOM, <laughs> followed by four weeks of RMO or RMO alone, RMO being just the rifampin and moxifloxacin. Luke, I think we've discussed before why they cut off the metronidazole at six weeks. Do you remember why from previous articles? It creates some neurologic toxicity. Yes! We don't normally think about it in dermatology. So um, after six weeks of metronidazole, by mouth, you have to worry about potential neurotoxicity. So after six weeks, they go from our mom to our mo. Um, so they had then patients... Um, who potentially couldn't take moxifloxacin, which is a fluoroquinolone, if they had issues such as previous tendon rupture or intolerance. So they replaced that with a medicine called pristinomycin. Pristinomycin is an interesting medication. Um, it has a different name called pyostasine, and it has two components. One is a macrolide, sort of like erythromycin, and another is Depsipeptide, um, which both of these bind to the ribosomal 50S subunit. Um, I couldn't figure out, but I don't think pristinomycin is available in the U.S. It's not available in all countries. It did seem to be available in France and um, in the British countries and things. So I think that it's this might be a medication we're not familiar with because it's not broadly available in our country, but I'm not positive about that. It was very difficult to figure that out. I looked for about 15 minutes to try to determine that. I found it uh, on GoodRx. That maybe we can get it in the U.S. I don't know. I've had a $750 hard time. $750 for a month. For it is the, not uh, cheap. Yes. Yeah. So if you had to replace the moxifloxacin with the pristinomycin, it could get kind of expensive. Um, so they had a primary endpoint of a sartorius score of zero. Sartorius score is a different measurement of severity of um, hydrogenitis separativa. And this is kind of a dynamic evaluation tool for HS. Um, it's kind of a useful study um, 
study-based tool because it incorporates symptoms and frequency of flares into the management of patients who have um, hydrogenitis supportiva. So while they were including patients based off of their Hurley stage, they were tracking their sartorius scores. And they um, were looking for a sartorius score of zero, which would be clinical remission at week 12. So that was their primary endpoint. So they found in their results that the median sartorius score dropped from 14 to zero at week 12 in 75% of their patients, which is pretty impressive. Um, they had 75% of the patients that reached complete response um, com or clinical remission, sorry. Uh, low initial sartorius score was a prognostic factor for achieving clinical remission. And the main side effects of these antibiotics were predictable. Mild gastrointestinal discomfort, mucosal candidiasis, and asthenia, which is a fancy way of saying people felt poorly. Um, here in Texas, we say people are feeling puny. They're feeling puny when they are asthenic. But asthenia is a more scientific way to describe that. Everything's um, bigger in Texas unless you're asthenic and then you're puny. Then you're puny. <laughs> Um, so also... the, the results were so impressive. I think they're probably worth repeating, Michelle. So the Sartorius scores like went all Drop. the way to zero. Yeah, 15 to zero at week 12. And they had 75% of their patients that had clinical remission, um, which is pretty impressive. The average number of flares dropped from 21 per year to one per year, which is also pretty dead gum significant. And so they conclude that complete and prolonged remission can be obtained in severe Hurley stage one hydrogenitis operativa using targeted antimicrobial treatments. Um, so I think this is a very interesting uh, study. They do relate that this is a single um, single site study. So, you know, we're always cautious about interpreting these data into general populations. Um, but they were interested in how we could better serve these patients. So then they kind of talk about the pathogenesis of HS and how much it causes handicap in daily life and accounts for one of the poorest quality of life amongst dermatologic diseases, which makes sense if you consider this condition, if you treat patients with it. I don't think any dermatologist that treats a patient with HS would argue that it has a anything more than a significant impact on the quality of life. Uh, frequently, there are repeated intermittent empirical antibiotic treatments used to treat 54 to 88% of HS patients with various combinations with uncertain efficacy and potential risk of antibiotic resistance emergence. And antibiotics are still considered first-line treatment for HS. Um, in Hurley's clinical staging, two-thirds of patients are stage one, which is the technically mildest form of the disease. However, these patients still have recurrent or permanently active painful inflammatory nodules or abscesses. They just lack sinus tracts or scarring. Um, using prolonged bacterial cultures, they determined that, uh, and they also did 16S bacterial metagenetics, they found three uh, main microbiota associated with Hurley stage one lesions. Staphylococcal lugdunensis, which I think is an interesting, possibly a simple continent there, uh, in 25% of cases. Polymorphous anaerobic flora in 50% of cases, or skin commensals. So they developed this oral targeted bactericidal combination with the rifampin, moxifloxacin, and metronidazole, the RMOM, to treat HS stage one in early stage one patients. Based on those particular bacterial strains that they found before. Uh, as a brief aside, so I ran into Staph lugdunensis in my fellowship when we had a couple of babies with EB who um, we cultured Staph lugdunensis, which I had never heard of before. And the infectious disease guys sort of described it as Staph aureus's older, meaner cousin. Um, <laughs> and it's not speciated out a lot of the time, which so maybe that's why I hadn't run into it before. 
uh, and it tends to cause kind of this green-yellow discharge, which mm. seemed to be characteristic in the patients that I saw. The green-yellow discharge sounds familiar for a lot of the HS patients I treat as well. So it's kind of the basosquame of the uh, Stahorius world, if you will. Yeah, maybe. I like that. Nice callback. Um, so when we have... Uh, did you just say left... nice callback to yourself? I did, yeah. Okay. I just, I, I, yeah. Justifiable. I'm just, just going to kiss it. my own bicep now. <laughs> okay. So, um... Ouch, your lips. <laughs> so let's see. So um, they did say when they had a patient that flared... Um, they would treat them with a low dose of cotrimoxazole, which is another name for a Bactrim-type antibiotic, basically, as a secondary prophylaxis of flares. So they found um, in their previous retrospective study that they had clinical remission in six out of six early stage one patients. So they wanted to see if this could be more broadly demonstrable in a larger cohort. So they did 12 weeks of treatment in these 28 patients. And the patients they chose were greater than 18 years of age. They had early stage one with abscess formation, single or multiple, without sinus tracts and scarring. Um, the HS diagnosis was established according to consensus definition by two HS specialized dermatologists at the Institut Pasteur Medical Center, which is very nice because it's French. Um, and that is a reference center for HS in France, so they didn't have a hard time getting enough patients for this study, which is nice. Um, the severity was defined as at least three years duration since disease onset, two, at least two inflammatory nodules at inclusion, and six flares in the past 12 months. Now, their standard population had significantly greater severity than that baseline um, requirement that they set for themselves. So they kind of had a, a little bit of a harder road to hoe than they maybe initially set out to. Um, there's patients basically um, were characterized as female predominance, 21 out of 28, and severe HS, um, early stage 1 HS, with a median disease duration of 14 and a half years. As those of us who treat this condition know, the longer this disease has persisted, the more difficult it gets to treat. It's kind of like a baboon in that way. The bigger they are and the older they are, the more aggressive they are. Um, only true of baboons, by the way. Yes, only true of baboons. Um, a median number uh, of areas involved of five. Remember, they said two nodules in their inclusion criteria. And a median number of flares per year median was 21, with a range between 5 and 52. And they were looking for uh, flares ranging from at least, I think, three. Let me check that. Hold on. And so I thought that that was kind of interesting and significant there. So they had a difficult patient population to treat, which I thought was was very interesting. Um, patients generally tolerated this antibiotic regimen well. Um, we talked about the fact that, of course, there was some gastrointestinal discomfort, which would be expected with any multiple antibiotic regimen, and they were common, so they had quite a lot of patients that had these difficulties with the GI intolerance. They actually had 96 um percent of patients with mild digestive discomfort. They had 64% of patients with mucosal candidiasis and that asthenia, that sort of feeling puny, happened in 79% of patients, but they noted that none of these side effects required treatment suspension. They also checked, and I'm impressed that they did this, uh, before starting treatment, two out of 28 patients were fecal carriers of extended spectrum beta-lactamase producing enterobacteria, so EESBL which is impress impressive that they checked for this. Um, and that carriage persisted in one patient during all of the study and disappeared in the other patient during follow-up. So ESBL is kind of a nasty um, pathogen that we have to be careful with when we're giving patients multiple antibiotics. Um, they also noted that um, despite those other side effects that they noticed, there was no significant rise in liver enzymes, which I think is an important thing 
to think about when you're treating somebody with longer-term antibiotic regimens. And I think that that is a valid thing to discuss. Um, in their discussion, they go over, you know, the HS treatment guidelines, which advise the use of topical clindamycin or oral tetracycline as first-line treatment, and in case of failure, to use rifampicin clindamycin. However, there were only two small randomized trials assessing the efficacy of antibiotics, oral tetracycline and topical clindamycin in HS, and these only demonstrated slight and temporary improvement. And so this was the first prospective report of the efficacy of this RMOM combination in real-life conditions in the treatment center. And they felt that this would be useful as first-line therapy for patients with severe Hurley stage 1 hydridinitis aperitiva. They developed a data set that showed a dramatic improvement in HS in 75% of their patients, um, with 75% of them getting clinical remission after 12 weeks, and in a major improvement in pain and quality of life. In nine of their patients, they did replace that moxifloxacin with pristinamycin because of their history of tendonitis, joint pain, or intolerance. And I thought that that was interesting to, like talk about and learn about. Um, they thought that this was a pretty ambitious endpoint, clinical remission, since most published studies use improvement as an objective. Um, so they also said studies on antibiotics rarely include long-term assessment of efficacy and tolerance. And this data actually, data set actually goes out to a full year. So they had uh, visits at six months, um, sorry, at six weeks, 12 weeks, and then six months and 12 months. Uh, so I thought that that was pretty impressive uh, for their data set. And that this is a, they have hypothesized that it's effective because it has wide antimicrobial spectrum, including anaerobes, and targeting the different flora isolated from HS lesions compared to the rifampin, clindamycin combination, um, which also has an appropriate antibacterial spectrum in HS. The pharmacone pharmacokinetics of RMOM association are more favorable with mild interactions between rifampin and moxifloxacin. And that this might account for the high clinical remission rate of this antibiotic association that they, they they observed. And so I thought that that was kind of interesting. They thought it was important to relate that with the rifampin-clindamycin combination, um, we have to consider the fact that that combination may result in a decrease of clindamycin plasma levels because of... Um, Rifampin being a potent inducer of the P450 cytochrome that mediates the metabolism of clindamycin. So when we ding, use ding ding ding, this is important here. Yeah. So when we use clindamycin and rifampin together, we're actually decreasing the bioavailable dose of clindamycin because rifampin is ramping up that P450 cytochrome that mediates the metabolism of clindamycin. So they kind of um, recommend calling this sort of a a quasi course of combined antibiotics when you use those together. And they felt that the pharmacokinetics of the RMOM therapy um, was beneficial. So I thought that that was very interesting. Um, so this is an interesting strategy. You know, I do feel very passionately about treating um, HS early and aggressively because the longer the disease is present, the more structures develop. And once those structures are present, then the disease becomes completely different animal, different, more difficult to control. And you have to deal with those sinus tracts in either a destructive way, or you have to have longitudinal therapies that continue to address them, or you have to send the patients either for extirpation of the sinus tracts or for excision and skin grafting, which is not a uh, procedure without its own morbidity. So, I'm into it. 
Mm-hmm, me too. I think I'm going to, like, you know, discuss it with the next couple, you know, early stage one patients we see. I would, you know, there was some utility in their com- combination therapy in early stage two patients as well. Less efficacy in early stage three, which isn't hugely surprising as we talk about that disease having um, anatomical modifications as it goes on and progresses. So they had really excellent results, especially compared to a lot of other stuff that's used to treat HS. Now, it's not a placebo-controlled randomized trial, but true. still, the results are pretty impressive. And um, so I also calculated the cost of this therapy. It's 91 bucks a month, which mm-hmm. is not bad. So once again, listeners, six weeks of the triple therapy. So that's rifampicin, 10 milligrams per kilogram once daily on an empty stomach, moxifloxacin, 400 milligrams daily, and metronidazole, 500 milligrams TID, or half that dose if your weight is under 60 kilograms. So you do that for six weeks, and then after after that, you stop the metronidazole, and you continue the stuff for four weeks, and then it looks like they say if a complete remission was obtained at that point, they start everybody on trimethoprim sulfamethoxazole, 400 milligrams a day, or if their weight is over 90 kilograms, 800 milligrams a day, or they said they can use doxycycline, 200 milligrams a day. Mm-hmm. And I guess they just continue that forever. So and they got these great results. They did note that uh, before they started the medicines, they did a CBC and a BMP and CMP and an electrocardiogram. I wonder what the electrocardiogram was for. Um, some of these antibiotics can be QT interval prolongers. And so I think that that, I'm not sure if they did that specifically, if they had to use the pristinomycin because the macrolide antibiotics are particularly problematic with QT interval prolongation. But if I recall correctly, I think the quinolones have also been implicated in that possibility. And I think that that's why they did that. I don't really want to order ECGs on my patients. Do I have to do that <laughs> if I want to start Armom? Um, You know, I, I think that you could look at their baseline risk factors and make an educated decision about it. (laughs) All right. Well, that was a nice article that gives us, I think, a pretty good option that I am looking forward to using. Our next article, however, is sad. Mm. So sorry, I have to bring us down because this is about a baby who died. Oh, that is very sad. The title is Death Associated with Natalol for Infantile Hemangioma. A Case for Improving Safety. This is out of Pediatrics. Um, and the authors are Eric McGillis, Travis Bauman, and Jenna Leroy. Um, and they are out of um, the University of Minnesota. So this is a case report. Um, as I said, a very sad. 10-week-old baby girl started on natalol for an infantile hemangioma, and then she died seven weeks later, apparently of natalol toxicity. And the idea here is that she had been constipated for days before her death. So she went 10 days without pooping. Oh, dear. And natalol, apparently, unlike propranolol, is excreted in the feces. So the author is... Oh, wait, hold on. Oh, there we go. Yep. So natalol and feces, propranolol in the urine. And so they... That's, hey, you can figure that out, though. They, you pee out the propranolol. That's nice. Yeah. I don't know about the natalol... Well, as Golion used to say, the other one's the other one. Yeah. <laughs> so they speculate that the natalol was sitting in the stool, which was sitting in her intestines, allowing it to be resorbed. Also, um, the half-life of natalol is pretty long. I don't know if this is bellworthy, but the half-life for natalol is about 22 hours, whereas propranolol is about four hours. And as we said, it's renally excreted. 
So propranolol is FDA approved for infantile hemangiomas and is first line for a lot of infantile hemangiomas these days. There's a lot of data behind it. And but there's this thought that maybe we should be using something like natalol or atenolol or something because natalol doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier and that might make it safer. So propranolol does cross the blood-brain barrier and we think maybe that's why it causes some sleep disturbance and some other stuff. And maybe it was just kind of a historical accident that it happened to be propranolol that the beta blockers was the beta blocker in the original studies where people noticed hemangiomas improving. And maybe we should have all just been using Adelol or something like that the whole time. So that's kind of the justification for using it. And up until now, it seemed to work well and be safe. This is the first reported death with it. Um, they also mention in this article that there is a pharmacokinetic study of six pediatric subjects that suggest that Natalol's pharmacokinetics are unpredictable in early infancy, um, which also might raise some questions about its safety. Um, but one reason why this case is especially um, tragic is that everything was done correctly and carefully. So there was a pediatric dermatologist directing this patient's care. The dose of natalol was started small and then titrated up. The medicine was formulated properly at the pharmacy. And two days prior to her death, the baby seemed to have less interest in feeding. And so mm. mom withheld three doses of natalol, just as we tell our patients to oh, if wow. the patient's not eating well, don't give them the medicine. On the evening of her death, she was a bit sleepier than normal, but she was otherwise fine, wasn't fussy or anything. She was fed before bed and put to bed. And then four hours later, she was discovered with perioral cyanosis, cold to the touch and unarousable. Uh, CPR started immediately. They called 911. Uh, help arrived 11 minutes later. CPR was continued on the way to the hospital. Um, but the baby died. And post-mortem, they discovered elevated levels of natalol in the cardiac blood. Um, so the level of, of natalol in her cardiac blood was 0.94 milligrams per liter. And they say, by comparison, an investigation of seven adults had a serum concentration of 0.077. So 0.077 versus 0.94. So that's 10 times greater, roughly. Um, but that's cardiac blood versus serum concentration. And so we're not quite sure if those are exactly... Um, you can compare them directly, um, but still, uh, a sad case. I love babies. We don't like mm -hmm. when they die, and uh, it it does raise some concerns about this natalol safety. After all, especially in babies where they have variability in their pooping habits. Yeah, I feel like propranolol might be the safer choice, though I'm still not convinced it's necessarily the best choice. Maybe something else like atenolol that I'm pretty sure I remember that it doesn't cross the blood-brain barrier or is more selective or something might be the one we should be using. But um, I feel like there's not going to be a lot of interest in natalol, especially after this case, and I think with justifiable reason. I think, um, you know, this is a good highlight of... Um the, you know, care we still need to exercise anytime we're treating neonates. Um, you know, I, I am not a pediatric dermatologist, so babies make me nervous. Um, so I stick very much to the letter of the guidelines when I'm treating um, pediatric patients. And, you know, even to the level where I will fight for hours with an insurance company to make sure that hemangiol is what's covered for the child and not generic propranolol because that is the formulation that's been FDA approved for the kiddos. And, you know, it seems also to be a little bit easier, of course, for the children to take because it's been formulated for, for that reason. Um, I think that also infants, 
you know, urinate fairly reliably, but even though I've never had a child myself, I do know that their uh, habit, their bowel habits are less predictable, and so a medication that can concentrate itself in the feces would be potentially an issue. But that is very, very sad for that family. What, where, where did that death happen? Well, I assume it happened in uh, Minnesota, since that's where the article's from. That's so sad. Um, for the record, I really don't like using Humangiol, and I just use the plain old <laughs> Propranolol because it's like 10 times cheaper. And it is cheaper. Just fine. It is definitely cheaper. Yeah, and, you know, and because Luke is a pediatric dermatologist, he gets that, you know, laterality of comfort where I do just do not have it. <laughs> well, I will work on making you more comfortable, and then you can send <laughs> the extra money that you would have spent on Humangiol to me. Okay. All right. Well, this is episode 20, which uh, seems a little bit like a milestone. Woohoo! So congratulations to us. So when we did episode 10, um, we had a little uh, sort of clip show where we discussed some of the things we had talked about in our previous episodes. So rather than review one more article, we're instead going to review ourselves. Woohoo! Super fun. So we had right. also... Oh, go, go ahead, ahead, Michelle. No, you go ahead, man. Okay, so last, at episode 10, we had also um, talked a little bit about the ways that just doing the podcast had influenced our practice. And um, I want to just mention that uh, episodes 11 to 20 have changed some of the things I've done. So I've used table salt for pyogenic granulomas, Ooh. about three of them. Um, none of the patients have come back or told me how it went, so hopefully they went well. Um, I recommended cholesterol slash lovastatin cream for a colleague, um, her patient had um, this extensive porokeratotic lesion that they thought was this porokeratotic eccrine osteodermal duct nevus thing, but had oh, coronary lamella and biopsy. And apparently that patient is improving on this treatment after just about four to six weeks. I've had about uh, five people we've got our compounding pharmacy to make this for, and the people I've heard back from have been very happy. That's pretty cool. And then I've updated our scabies um, handout about the length of time they need to leave stuff in bags. I love that. I think that's awesome. And how much time do you put on there on your handout now? I think I put in um, five days because we live in a fairly arid climate. Cool. I like it. Um, so I have also had um, some insights and um, improvements brought from the articles we've reviewed. Um, one of the, I think, most clinically impactful ones was I actually had a patient on inpatient consults that had acute inflammatory edema, and we were able to get the primary team not to lump more antibiotics onto this patient who was already ill for cardiac reasons. Um, so that acute inflammatory edema was an um, article we reviewed in episode 11 by Dr. Lindy Fox at UCSF, who is a lovely friend of mine. Shout out to Ms. Lindy, um, who gives an excellent presentation about this. Uh, so this is a type of erythema and it happens in critically ill patients, uh, usually of above average BMIs, likes to affect the thighs and panis, but spares the skin folds, which is a good way to diagnose it. And they figure out if that article is very useful. Um, I've also been more um, gentle with my checking of uh, potassiums or BMPs in patients with treatment on spironolactone that are under the age of 40. So I think we can save some healthcare dollars that way, which is lovely. Um, I have not been able to modify my um, tuberculosis monitoring in TNF uh, inhibitor-treated patients because our uh, EHR won't let us prescribe the TNF inhibitors without having kind of good documentation that we've had the TB testing. So that is not something I have been able to do yet. Your um, EHR won't let you do it? Yeah, our EHR has a little block. What? The and EHR then, gets 
decide what's best for the patients. Something's you not right You know how here. this goes. And then um, I've gone over the hyaluronidase protocol for intraarterial filler injection before we did our practical for our residents. Fortunately, we did not have to use that information, <laughs> but all of them do know that information now. And then finally, I have started a Premalast for a patient with generalized GA. They haven't been back yet, but I shall give you an update in subsequent podcasts. And you said you also had a patient with psoriasis who was interested in oh, the yeah. I approach. Oh, yeah. Yes. So um, I have a patient with psoriasis. Interestingly, I've had two. Okay, so for one of the pa- that wanted to try the alternative regimen, for one of them, the sticking point was the alcohol. For other, the other one, the sticking point was the peppers. This is a gentleman who has um, this psoriasiform eruption who has been on this jalapeno-eating kick for the past year or so. He loves jalapenos. He thinks that they have um, increased his resting metabolism and helped him to lose weight. And so he was interested in the entire protocol, but concerned about having to cut the peppers out of his diet. So I thought that that was kind of fascinating. But um, he is in the pre-contemplation phase of undertaking this dietary escapade with me. So we shall have hopefully a report in previous or in follow-up episodes of Dermosphere. One of the local restaurants here has jalapeno margaritas. So I guess that would be especially bad for your psoriasis. (laughs) If you really want to mess up your, you know... Your gut, you know, microbiota and and impermeability. I think that's a good idea. (laughs) All right, let's do a clip show here. So uh, we we I did it all last time, but this time we're splitting it up. All right. So in episode eleven, as we talked about, that acute inflammatory edema is a thing. So again, that is that pseudocellulitis in acutely ill patients. It causes erythema and edema in dependent areas, most frequently the thighs and the panis, but it spares the skin folds. You kind of just pry apart sort of the pendicular fold from the groin area, and you can kind of see the white sparing of that area, which is a good way to make that diagnosis. Sorry, Luke. I know that was a very descriptive. No, I imagine you using like a crowbar. (laughs) I mean, just gloves. You work gloves because it's a good idea um hyperkalemia with spironolactone um really is only a factor in patients over the age of 40 unless there are underlying problems this was an article out of the um women's dermatologic society journal by authors dr Thede and bethany schlosser who is a lovely human being um and so this was a, a useful article basically indicating that when you have young patients with normal renal function without confounding factors like eating disorders or other medications that alter the metabolism of potassium, you really only need to check for hyperkalemia in patients of uh, over 40. Um, repeat TB testing with TNF inhibitors may be unnecessary. This was a report out of Case Western by Dr. Anthony Fernandez et al. Um, TNF inhibitors make you gain weight, at least in Taiwan. That was another article that we reviewed. And the, the one of the hypotheses we kind of posited was that TNF might be a cachectic um, mediator in the inflammatory process. And removing that may either interfere with signaling with adipocytes or may decrease some of the cachecticism. Ca- ca- uh, How would you say that? Catech- catechism. Catechism. catechism is yep, it's that's catechism. wrong. That's not right. That is not right. I'm Episcopal. It's close enough for me to know that that's not right. But anyway, some of the weight loss that might be caused by increased circulating levels of TNF inhibition. Um, spray sunscreens are fine for application in ideal circumstances, and they achieved acceptable coverage. So this was a study where patients had, or sorry, participants had chucks taped to their forearms, and they sprayed the sunscreen on their forearms, and then the chucks were then weighed to see how much sunscreen proposed possibly would have gotten onto the skin. Uh, Guidelines for first skin cancer screening in transplant patients. Basically, if you're Caucasian and male, you're going to need regular skin cancer screening if you have a 
any kind of organ transplant, anybody who gets a thoracic organ transplant is going to need um, very regular skin cancer screening. The jury was out for patients who were African-American without a thoracic transplant. However, we wanted to emphasize that that does not mean skin cancer screening is not important in those patients. It is just that they were not able to reach a consensus. In episode 12, we reviewed something that was kind of a little bit blasphemic if you, you know, go by strict dogma in dermatology, um, where there was really not a statistically significant connection between cyclin antibiotics, such as doxycycline, tetracycline, and minocycline, and pseudotumor cerebri, which I thought was kind of fascinating. We talked about burning mouth syndrome and recurrent stomatitis, possibly being related to eugenol allergy. This is personally relevant to me as I am allergic to eugenol. Big red gum is my nemesis. Um, so eugenol is used in cosmetics, foods, and restorative dental materials. It's also a phenolic compound that's extracted from cloves and cinnamon. And in dentistry, it's used a lot as an antiseptic and an antiseptic agent. And it can be an irritant and a contact sensitizers. We found that lasers were the best way to treat varicose veins. And we reviewed the landmark sentinel lymph node study that showed that careful observation with high-performance ultrasonography of regional nodal basins is safe for patients with melanoma with sentinel lymph node metastases. Dissection does improve regional nodal control and decreases recurrence slightly overall, and it also provides additional staging information, but that is at the cost of additional morbidity. We found out that SPF 100 is better than SPF 50, which kind of was one of those things that I would have predicted would have been true, but it is nice to have ammunition behind recommending a higher SPF. We found that women are grumpier about taking biologics than men. So um, when we when they looked at overall complaints about different kinds of symptomatology for patients who are treating with biologics, the patients that were female tended to complain more than the patients that were male. And in a very nice article out of the JAD, we reviewed pigments in American tattoo inks and their propensity to elicit allergic contact dermatitis. I loved that article because it gave me new pimping fodder. One of my favorite things now to ask about is what causes um, orange pigment, which are predominantly azo dyes, um, which is very fun. And I also like to ask a little bit about yellow dyes, which of course we talk about you know, cadmium, but there are other chemicals, including certain azos and quinothalone, which can also cause a yellow pigmentation, which I liked. And I thought that was very fun. Uh, did you have something you wanted to say? You sounded like you had a point. Nope. Nope. All right. Going on. So um, episode 13, we talked about making PDT more comfortable. Um, this was done by decreasing the incubation period of the levulinic acid and improving the tolerability of the photodynamic therapy treatment with less pain at treatment, but similar results. And you said you'd tried this and it hadn't helped? I said I hadn't tried it. I oh, haven't tried it. Okay. But I should. <laughs> okay. And then scalp cooling for chemotherapy induced alopecia. We know that that helps to decrease the circulation of the toxic metabolites into the scalp. We found that the ILK is not super fantastic for HS and that glycolic acid peels with or without trichloroacetic acid can be beneficial for melasma. We found that sometimes farago nodularis can be a presenting sign of malignancy and that dogs can find melanoma. And of course, there's an app for that, the SunTrack Calculator for Skin Cancer Risk in Transplant Patients. So useful app to have on your phone, especially if you care for a high percentage of transplant patients. We found a little bit more about the hyaluronidase protocol for intra-arterial filler injection. I think that these are things that every um, physician that injects hyaluronic acid fillers should be very familiar with. We talked about medical overuse in dermatology. We are definitely in some ways guilty and we should all try to reduce that. We hey, found mind that you all, I'm looking 
at you. <laughs> we found that partial biopsies are okay for melanoma, even though as a pathologist, that makes my heart cry. Um, we found that ivermectin can be safe in babies and that cryotherapy and electrodissection are equivalent for SKs. And we also had a discussion where we had a guest speaker, Chris Syed, talking about hydrogenatus superativa. And then episode 15, we talked about apremolast working for generalized GA, as well as for refractory aphthous stomatitis. We talked about thinking about a woman's MMR status before starting a biologic, specifically because some of the torch organisms exist within those vaccine-preventable diseases, and people can develop recrudescences of those conditions if they are not properly vaccinated. We talked about trying Dermabond for pyrigonodules. If people won't quit picking at it, cover it up with glue. And we talked about cholestatic pruritus. We also talked about the fact that lots of Botox makes permanent changes. I have used that article when I had a patient who was asking, you know, does it really make a difference if we do Botox long-term? And I was able to point to the literature and say, well, in fact, it does seem to produce some long-term cosmetic benefits. And we talked about malignancies and dermatomyositis and the need to screen broadly, especially in younger patients. And then, in episode 16, we talked about hyfrication and how it's safe with cardiac devices, uh, at least so far, and how hyfrication stands for high-frequency destruction, I believe. I think that's correct. Uh, we had a very meaty and excellent cosmeceutical review um, where I decided that, well, after reading the article, I decided that the following stuff works for wrinkles and aging. Retinoids, niacinamide, hyaluronic acid, glycolic acid, and turmeric, and some random over-the-counter stuff that I found online that looks like it might be effective includes Derm Medicine 5-in-1, Art Naturals Anti-Aging Set with Vitamin C, Retinol, and Hyaluronic Acid Face Serum, and L'Oreal Revitalift Triple Power Anti-Aging Face Moisturizer. Uh, no financial interest, of course. Those are just things I looked up online that seemed to contain the ingredients that looked like they were effective based on this review. And then for hyperpigmentation, effective stuff includes retinoids, niacinamide, vitamin C, ferulic acid, which stabilizes the vitamin C, glycolic acid, tranexamic acid, kojic acid, and turmeric. And something I found online that looks like it might contain at least a number of those ingredients is Active Pure 25% vitamin C serum for face. That was a meaty article. Good one. Mm -hmm. That's uh, an excellent we, one. We talked about poikilodermis plaque-like hemangioma, um, which Michelle used to call weird vascular thingy. So this <laughs> uh, is, the authors sort of describe this as a newly described entity, which is a solitary erythematous to violaceous poikilodermatous plaque on the lower extremity or pelvic girdle. Um, usually in older people, like in their 70s, it follows an indolent clinical course and it has some characteristic, I believe, dilated capillaries on uh, histo. We talked about naturopathic and allopathic approaches to atopic dermatitis. Everybody seems to agree on moisturization, but differs mostly on the role of food in the condition. We talked about how mevalonate kinase pathway mutations seem to lead to porokeratoses. And we talked about mites, not the bugs, but the acronym MITES, Midface Toddler Excoriation Syndrome, which is a rare genetic condition where people scratch the hell out of their midfaces. Mm -hmm. In episode 17, um, 
our second in our trilogy of porokeratosis uh, <laughs> articles was the cholesterol lovastatin article. That's been a real good one. Is that so, return of the porokeratosis or the right. porokeratosis strike back? Which one is that? Uh, we'll have to contact the authors and make sure we get it right. So 2% cholesterol compounded 2% lovastatin cream. By the way, that's about 40 bucks for a 30 gram tube, at least around here. Um, used BID for porokeratosis was effective when used up to three months. We talked about how you can use ultrasound potentially to determine where your filler is in the artery and then inject your hyaluronidase in a targeted fashion. We learned how to kill scabies on fomites. So you heat them to 122 degrees for 10 minutes, you freeze them at 14 degrees for five hours, or you put it in a plastic bag for three to seven days, depending on sort of how hot and humid your um, environment is. We did a review of PO tranexamic acid in dermatology. Seems like most of the data supports it for melasma, mostly at 250 milligrams BID. This is the one where we got table salt for pyogenic granulomas. Still hoping that actually has been working for my patients. <laughs> and then we talked about topical tranexamic acid for oral hemorrhage and SJS or TEN, how uh, just sort of soaking a piece of gauze in tranexamic acid and putting it in somebody's mouth can help the oral hemorrhage in that condition. Talking and then, with the OBs about tranexamic acid, they say that um, at the doses we use it for, for melasma, it's got a similar prothrombotic risk to oral contraceptive pills for counseling patients. Oh, all right. Thanks. Um, and also, that was our final episode of uh, the year 2019. And so we gave out some awards. So if you want to listen to uh, episode 17, starting at timestamp 5208, we gave out nine awards ranging from the coolest thing we learned to study I wish I had thought of myself. So check those out. Congratulations, of course, to our award winners. Uh, and those and are also listed on our um, social media pages. Oh, yes, and on our website. Um, so I guess we'll we might as well talk about it now. So our website is dermospherepodcast.com. It's got uh, all of our episode archives on it, and as well as links to the original articles. And I also... Um, recently made a new page called Favorites. So if you look uh, on the website, it's up at the top, and it has the award winners from the 2019 Dermy Awards, and it also has Luke's Gold Star articles, which are my roughly 20 favorite articles of all time. And then our social media, we're on Facebook as Dermosphere Podcast and uh, Twitter, right? Dermosphere Podcast. Mm-hmm. Dermosphere Podcast. And maybe even Instagram, with or without filters. I'm so bad at Instagram. I need like one of you lovely young people to teach me how to do this. Somebody who's about 10 or 15 years younger than us. Yeah. Um, in episode 18, we talked about transient facial nerve palsy and how it's a complication of some facial surgeries. Uh, it's transient, but it's scary because it's facial nerve palsy. Yep. We've talked about allergic contact dermatitis and chronic leg ulcers, especially if you have other reasons to suspect they might be um, having an allergic contact dermatitis. You probably It's probably worth patch testing them. In a nice trial, methotrexate did not help chronic spontaneous urticaria. We talked about how hormone replacement therapy seems to increase the risk of melanoma when looked at it from a population standpoint. And uh, we talked about already about the hair dye and straightener stuff and how it m seems to increase the risk of breast cancer, at least in high-risk populations. The takeaway from that episode seemed to be anything that makes you look better as a woman is bad for you. <laughs> yeah. Except um, Botox, I, not Botox. <laughs> yeah, not Botox. And then... Um, 
our final uh, entry in the trilogy of porokeratosis was an article about porokeratosis tichotropica, um, just describing that it's ex- it exists, though it's rare. It usually shows up on the butt of older people and is kind of big. And then in episode 19, just the last episode, we talked about psoriasis and potential leaks links to leaky guts. Controversial, but that was an interesting article. We talked about that. Uh, about dogs and if they eat 5-FU then they die so they don't, don't have to eat too much of it so don't let your dogs eat your medicine by god and uh, we talked that bromonidine helps for alcohol-induced flushing in asians we talked about the kidneys in adult line purpura so even people with minimal or no urinary findings at the onset of hsp can still have kidney problems years afterward uh, we talked about parigonodularis, an algorithm for diagnosis and treatment. Basically, they have to have characteristic lesions and be itchy for six weeks. And we talked about tracheonychia. Uh, probably the most important thing is that it resolves spontaneously. And that brings us up to our current episode, the one that you are listening to right now. And today, we talked about uh, that hair dye article again and how uh, a breast surgeon had some important points to raise. We talked about... Uh, let's see, what do we do next? Next, we did genetics of basosquame, I guess. It seems that basosquames are basal cells that get an arid 1A mutation. We talked about dupilumab for kids under 12. It seems to work. It seems to be safe. And if you try, maybe you can get it for 90% of people, though my my hit rate has not been that high. It has been 0%. We talked about Armom therapy for HS. So that's rifampin, moxifloxacin, and metronidazole. We talked about a case of death with natalol for infantile hemangiomas, and now we're now we're here. We made it. <laughs> Started at the bottom. Now we're here. Just kidding. Um, so, and just as a reminder, the medications that are used to treat basal cell carcinoma are the vismodigib and the sinetigib. So, um, vimurafenib being a medication that's used to treat melanoma. Yeah, VRAF inhibitor, V600E, I believe. So, exactly. Although it is kind of funny that that's a setup. I mean, that seems like a great way to kind of trip your, you know doing a little pimpable content and not that I'm ever trying to trip up my residents, but I would rather be the one that tricks them than the boards tricking them. So fair enough. Thanks for listening, everybody. And thanks to the university of Utah department of dermatology for supporting this podcast. And thanks to Texas tech dermatology for lending us Michelle for the podcast. We talked about our website. We talked about our social media accounts. Um, subscribe so that you can listen to more great episodes on Apple um, Podcasts or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. If you like us, give us great reviews. If you don't like us, give us great reviews and then just don't listen anymore. <laughs> and we'll see you guys next time. Ooh.